Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. Let's take out our Bibles and uh, turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. Uh, We're studying verse by verse through the book of Exodus together, kind of going uh, at it uh, with a fast pace. And today we come to our seventh study in the book of Exodus. And uh, I want to just tell you at the outset of this teaching, this is a a sobering passage for a lot of people. So I'm going to try to give it the respect uh, that it uh, deserves. So we're going to look at the night of the Passover. That uh, is uh, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through chapter 13, verse 16. But I'm not going to read every single verse, but we are going to read a long chunk together. So if you guys would follow along with me, I'll point out where I'm at, starting in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 11. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord, verse 3, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants, all these your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Last week, we talked about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you guys would jump forward to verse 28 of that same 12th chapter. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians, verse 33, were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Very sobering. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us from it today, that we might not ever take the salvation that you win for us by the precious blood of Christ for granted, Lord. Let us honor it, and Lord, help us to understand and apply this passage today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Okay, at this point in the book of Exodus, uh, the Hebrews had been there in Egypt for 430 years. We've been talking about that. 430 years they've been living in Egypt. And uh, now we've come to the moment, this episode, this story, where God is going to set the captive Hebrews free from their Egyptian captors. Uh, In chapter 12, verse 41, this episode is referred to as the very day, that's the quote, the very day the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So this is, this is widely considered in the Hebrew mentality as this was the big day that God won victory for us. We didn't read it, but in verse 37 and 38 of chapter 12, it tells us that on this night, 600,000 Hebrew men along with women and children and a large mixed multitude of other nationalities along with their flocks and herds were set free that evening, a major group of people. Uh, the, the whole story presents the Egyptian will as being broken by the finger of God, the hand of God, the activity of God. Uh, The destruction of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, that's what we're going to look at next week. But this Passover night was always thought of as the moment that God delivered his people. Now, our whole episode we read in chapter 11, it begins with one final word that Moses delivers to Pharaoh. Last week, 
Pharaoh said, you'll never see my face again. And Moses said, I agree, you'll never see my face again. But this is one last word that I need to say to you before I depart. A Pharaoh would not let the people go, but this final plague of the death of the firstborn was going to break his demonic grip upon God's people. What's interesting, some scholars even point to an Egyptian mythological tale from history at around this time that actually said that, the, that, that a Pharaoh king would one day be judged by him whose name is hidden through the death of his firstborn son. So it's very possible that this was like the mythological backdrop that the Egyptian mentality was working with. And here comes Moses saying, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who is, if you don't repent and relent and let my people go, he will touch and take the life of your firstborn son. Now, this is a difficult movement for lots of people when they read it. But it's a movement where God sets his people free from their slavery. It's a pinnacle moment in the Exodus, in the Old Testament, and of course, in all of the Bible. The the Passover event, it echoes throughout the church's communion table even today. We're going to be partaking of communion at the end of this service. It is an echo to, it is an extension of the events of this night so many years ago. The story that the death of God's firstborn son is the only way that anyone can be saved. Now, there are thousands of little points that we could bring out of this really big passage of scripture, uh, but I'm going to focus on three things today, okay? And the first thing I want to talk to you about is that I believe that this passage shows us, and I'm going to talk to you about why, I think this passage shows us that God is slow to anger, when we get to Exodus chapter 34, God is going to reveal himself by name to Moses. He's going to say, I'm gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, on and on. And uh, it will become the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Okay? It's, it's God's way of saying, this is who I am. You need to have this on repeat uh, throughout uh, your story and throughout your lives. You need to know who I am. But he reveals himself there as many things, but one of them being slow to anger. Uh, You might not think, though, that this passage tells us as much. I mean, it's a hard episode for many of us to digest. Just the phrases in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 12, that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, along with the collective cry in Egypt, it can be hard for some people to read. You know, what is happening here in this movement? Many people have wondered, because of passages like these, if God is a moral monster or a cosmic bully who renders catastrophe on whoever he wants, whenever he wants. I can recall an old comic strip by uh, the the author Gary Larson, he had a comic strip called The Far Side, you might remember it, but there was one particular uh, uh, comic that he put out and it was, it was called uh, God at His Computer. And uh, it was just like an image of this old man with white hair and a white beard and he's looking at his computer screen and you're looking over his shoulder and on his screen there's this innocent looking guy walking on a sidewalk and there's a piano attached to a crane directly over his head. 
and uh, God has his finger uh, out over his keyboard and it's hovering over a key that is labeled smite. You know, like he's just thinking about it. I see this poor guy walking under the piano. Do I smite him or do I not smite him? Do I drop the piano on his head or do I not drop the piano on his head? Many people think this way about God. And uh, so that's why I want to talk about this. I think this passage actually shows us that God is slow to anger. Uh, One reason that I can declare this truth today is that God had this power to do this act uh, all along throughout the book of Exodus, but did not use it until exhausting nine other plagues before this one. During the first nine strikes or the nine judgments upon Egypt and their gods, human life was harmed, human life was greatly inconvenienced, human life was hurt, but human life was not eliminated. And though uh, separation of the Hebrews uh, was clear from the Egyptians, uh, God also made it abundantly clear and totally obvious that he favored the Hebrew people. No Egyptian at this point, after nine plagues, had any right to wonder where God stood. You know, sometimes people will say that they'd believe in God if he just showed up and revealed himself in some powerful or magnificent or miraculous or straightforward way. That's exactly what God did in this passage. And you have a whole group of people, including Pharaoh, who are unwilling to submit to what God is clearly revealing himself to be against the Egyptian gods and a God all of his own. In clear terms, every person in Egypt could understand that their historical gods were nothing and that the God of the Hebrews was supreme. But still, after nine full judgments, the Hebrew people do, or the Egyptian people do not budge. They will not set the Hebrews free. And still, through all nine plagues, God has yet to strike the Egyptians in this way. That presents him as slow to anger. But there's another element that presents him as slow to anger as well. And it's that God had delayed this judgment for centuries. The the people of Israel had been in captivity for 430 years. Now, the first generation, it seems to have gone really well. They had the favor of Joseph. They had a favored position in Pharaoh's uh, kingdom. But rather quickly, it seems, things turned so that it's very possible that they'd endured 400 years of increasing injustice there in Egypt. This Passover night was not only entirely avoidable, Pharaoh could have relented, but a very long time coming, especially when you consider how many thousands or millions of people were harmed during those 400 years and deceived by the Egyptian worship system. I mean, it was a total lie that many people were believing, but God is long-suffering. God hated that system all along for what it was doing to people, But his long-suffering nature meant that his judgment would wait until his wrath had built up to this point. In other words, the Bible is presenting God as not rash or temperamental or flying off in a rage, but calm and calculated and waiting for the last possible moment to do what is an unnatural work in many ways for him to do. The Bible calling it his strange work, the work of judgment. I I heard one author, pastor, who... A very artistic kind of guy, great writer. And uh, he wrote a piece that he read to his congregation, and it was kind of a historically um, factual uh, piece of fiction. So rooted in true history, 
but a fictional piece. And it was a piece that he wrote from the perspective of a, a Hebrew woman from Exodus chapter one, who as a young woman had become pregnant. And he kind of went along declaring how she had in her pregnancy, hearing the edict from the Pharaoh that they had to throw their babies into the Nile River. She had pleaded with God, you know, God, if there, I, I will do anything for this baby to, to live. I'll do anything if you save this child's life. But then when her son was born, uh, his life was not saved. And his body was thrown into the Nile River. And she, in this piece, ceased praying to God. Her heart was shut off from the Lord. How could you have allowed that into my life? How could you have done that to me? And for 40 years, she would not talk to God until a moment came where she heard the reports of a man named Moses who had come back to Egypt. This Hebrew man was saying that God was real, that God loved them, that God remembered them. And as plague after plague rained down upon Egypt in this pastor's story, this woman's heart began to be softened. Perhaps God is real. Perhaps he does love us. And with the death of the firstborn son of the Pharaoh and so many around her, she began to realize that God is indeed a God of justice. That he had indeed seen her pain and her affliction and what she had endured. And when, when I listened to that story, it just, it just helped me kind of consider my little place on the timeline of human history. So often we like to sit back in our leather couches with our leather-bound Bibles and our gilded pages saying, how could God act like this? But I think if you were that Hebrew woman or you were in that generation, you would say, how could God wait so long? to do this. You see, God is long-suffering. He's showing himself to be slow to anger. And I should also mention that I believe that a day will come, brothers and sisters, when we will see all of God's decisions regarding judgment in that light. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that he will return and judge and make war in righteousness. It will be pure, clean, holy, and right. And we will all in that day, from our eternal perspective and vantage point, sing the song of Moses, where one of the lines goes, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. From this vantage point, there might be things that we read or that we see in the Bible where we wonder, how was God just and righteous in that activity? But the moment will come from our eternal vantage point where we say, God, every decision that you ever made was just and true and right. And of course, the Bible presents this movement as just retribution for the time that Pharaoh killed a generation of Hebrew boys in the Nile River. Uh, there's a great author, his name's Paul Copen, uh, and he uh, writes a lot of books defending the Christian faith, and he's a great apologist, but he wrote one book called, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Question mark. And uh, he lays out in his book six strong reasons that God was right to judge the Egyptians in this way. The, fir the first reason that he holds out is that God was doing to Egypt what they had done to the Hebrews. Uh, they'd not, in all these years since that act of commanding the babies to be thrown into the Nile River, they have not corrected their genocidal acts, and now they had to pay for their crimes. They had a whole generation that passed by. Will you guys correct that previous decision? 
Will you do anything to confess that it was wrong? Will you try at all to make things right with the Hebrew people? Instead, they put their foot down and said, no, we were right for behaving that way towards God's people. Now, as a side note, I, along with lots of theologians, suspect that all these baby Egyptian children are eternally in God's presence because they never had a chance to rebel from or respond to God's revelation in any knowing or meaningful way. Uh, But the second reason that he gives is that, as I mentioned last week, all the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, all the Egyptians had to partake in the large-scale scheme of enslaving and brutalizing the Hebrew people. A pharaoh could command it, but an entire system of leaders right down to the Egyptian populace had to engage in a radical shift. They had to shift from being neighbors and friends with the Hebrew people to being torturers and oppressors of the Hebrew people. And it took more than pharaoh to accomplish that shift. Third, this current pharaoh had done nothing to repent of or soften the dictates of previous regimes. In fact, when Moses came to town and said, God says, let my people go, what did he do? He made their work doubly hard, an indication that he would only let them go if forced by a hand stronger than his own. Remember, none of the previous plagues got him to the point of saying, I'll let God's people go. It took something this drastic. Fifth, we have to recognize that there's something intensely uh, spiritual about this warfare. God is judging the Egyptian gods. He's not punishing a random people group, but false gods that have deceived the nations. If their false doctrines had their way, the Hebrews would have been absorbed into Egypt. And if the Hebrews were absorbed into Egypt, God's mission to save the world through the offspring of Abraham would have come to a drastic end. This is a spiritual war. And as with the flood narrative in Genesis, this is presented as God's last resort. Any of Moses' warnings or God's plagues could have repointed Pharaoh's heart, but he was determined it would not let them go. And finally, as seen elsewhere, such as in the flood episode, God is seen as the giver and taker of life. And here, he is under no obligation to give them their 70 or 80 years. He is deciding to expedite the process of the judgment that he said we would all come under if we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gives and takes life, and here he takes it a little earlier than we are used to. So God does judge, but he is long-suffering in that judgment, slow to anger. He waited 120 years before he brought the flood. He waited over 400 years for the Canaanite sin to become full. He allowed Nineveh a respite because they repented in the book of Jonah. He sent prophet after prophet to rebellious Israel, waiting generations to discipline them. And Jesus shows us that same God. Jesus talked about judgment more than most Christians are comfortable with. He he spoke about judgment all the time, but he also was quick to forgive the woman caught in adultery or tell the thief on the cross that he would join him in paradise that very day. Same God. Now, I also want to point out to you before I leave this particular subject today, that not only is God slow to anger, but as I already said, he's gracious and merciful or merciful and gracious. And I want to tell you that there's actually deep mercy connected to this episode. You see, years later, When the prophet Isaiah came onto the scene in Israel, God took the story of the Hebrew exodus that we're reading of today 
And he applied it to the Egyptian people who were still around at that time. In Isaiah's vision of the future, Isaiah started to talk about what the world would be like when Jesus returns, when the Christ comes again. And in his vision, he said that in that moment, Egypt will have a revival. So much so that they build an altar to Yahweh in their own land and worship him. Isaiah 19, verse 19 and 21. Though Pharaoh in this story had refused to acknowledge Yahweh, on that day when Jesus comes, all of Egypt will acknowledge Yahweh. They will cry out to the Lord and he will hear them. Look at what it says in Isaiah 19, 21 and following. It says, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. This is when Jesus returns. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. On that day, Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that cool? God is saying, a day is coming where these very people that I've judged, I'm going to bring them into my family. I'm going to revive them. They're going to be Yahweh worshipers, and I'll consider them just like I consider the people of Israel, my inheritance. So though this is one hard chapter in Egypt's history, God has ensured that it will not be the final chapter in their history. Grace is coming. Okay, the second big idea that I want us to consider today about this passage is, is probably the main point of this whole story and in in this whole passage anyways, and, it, and it's simply this. God's deliverance requires blood. God's deliverance requires blood. I mean, this is not the way that you would expect the story to unfold, all these different plagues, and Pharaoh's like, I'm not gonna do it, I'm not gonna move, I won't budge, and then God says, okay, I'm gonna strike the firstborn, but the way that people are gonna be saved from this catastrophe is with, wait for it, blood from a spotless lamb on their door. It's just like a weird twist in the story. Now, you might just think that all God is doing here is what he's done from plague four to plague nine. In plague four to plague nine, God made a difference obvious between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. You know, when darkness came upon all of Egypt, darkness that could be felt for a period of three days, what did they have in Goshen where the people of Israel lived? It was totally light. There were, uh, it was obvious at this point that God had made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. So you might think that's what's happening on that night. The angel of death or the destroyer is coming into Egypt under God's direction. And uh, the message is don't touch the Hebrew people. But God is careful to make sure that we understand that this is different than those previous plagues. Look at what he said in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 12. He said, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I'm the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you, God said, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see what? The blood. Not when I see you. Not when I see that there's Hebrews in there. Not when I see that there's descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in there. But when I see the blood. We're meant to be startled by that revelation. Something much more serious and grave than the previous nine plagues is going to happen. Without the blood of the lamb, there is no life, only death. One person said it this way, the destroyer's mission was blind to Israelite distinctions. Had an Israelite family not painted its doorway with the lamb's blood, the destroyer would have killed the firstborn of that household as well. Now this might be a hint in the passage that the Hebrew people, though persecuted, though enslaved, though oppressed for generations, that the Hebrew people were not innocent in God's sight. And we, we've already seen at this point in the story that they have the capacity to doubt God and to complain about his plans in their lives. But of course, once they get out into the wilderness, if you've ever read the book of Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know uh, that in those episodes, you'll get to see the full force of the sinful nature of the Hebrew people. They'll rebel against Moses. They'll complain against God. They'll worship a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountaintop receiving the Ten Commandments. These are, in other words, not good but oppressed people, they are sinners whom God must redeem like every single one of us. And everything up to this point in Exodus, it creates a little bit of a problem for people like that, people within, within the, with whom there is inward sin. You know, the Hebrews, of course, they descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're God's people. They're the ones through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But at this point in Exodus... How has God been revealed? He's been revealed as the God of the burning bush. He's been revealed as one who, when he is present, everything around him is considered holy ground. And plague after plague made God's power, God's majesty, and God's holiness burn brightly among the stubble of Egypt and their gods. All this makes the true thrust of this movement, the story, uh, and the question, the question being, how can we approach God? Or as one hymnist put it, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? It's a, it's a way for a human to say, how can I have fellowship with that? How can I approach a God like that? How can I know a God like that? How can I, mortal man, deal with uncreated, immortal, all-powerful God as he's presented here in Exodus? And the answer that Exodus was trying to give us through this jarring, shocking movement is, the answer is by blood. 
It happens only by blood. God gave them distinct directions for that night. He told them that they would have a symbolic feast that was meant to extend to every single year of their existence. On the first day of the first month, everyone was to take a spotless lamb into their home. 14 days later, everyone was to kill that lamb at twilight. They were to take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the top of their doorposts and the side of their doorposts on their front door. They were to then roast the lamb. They were to eat it that very night with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And if any remained in the morning, they were to burn it all. And they were to make sure that when they ate it, their belt was fastened, their sandals were on, and their staffs were in their hands because it would be time to go when God set them free. God was saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you while I strike the land of Egypt. So how did the Hebrew people survive? By putting their faith in the blood. It was faith based on God's past actions. Everything Moses said that God would do, God did. So they had reason to believe that this would also happen. But it was faith nonetheless. Trust and belief that the blood would lead to their salvation. And importantly, this faith had to be exercised while they were still enslaved in Egypt. Before they were set free, they had to apply the blood. And the Bible, of course, bolts forth from this moment in Scripture with the declaration that we are only passed over from judgment by the blood of the perfect sacrifice. The entire Levitical sacrificial system, especially the central day of atonement, pointed forward to the better and final sacrifice that is Jesus. In Genesis, Abraham had told his son Isaac by faith that one day God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And when Jesus came along, his forerunner John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Abraham's firstborn, Isaac did not need to die. God's firstborn would lay down his life. Romans 3.25 says that God put him forth as a propitiation by his blood. Romans 5 verse 9 says that we are justified by his blood. Colossians 1 verse 20 says that peace with God comes by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9.14 says that his blood can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says that we are ransomed from futility, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Revelation 5 verse 9 says that Jesus was slain and by his blood, he ransomed people for God. And Ephesians 2.13 says that all of us who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is our shelter from the storm. His blood is our life raft. His blood is our life-saving blood transfusion. His blood is the way we are saved from our unholiness before a holy God. So I wanted you to see that there. This is important in the passage. Our deliverance comes by what? By the blood. Thank you. Good job, class. Okay. All right, last thing I wanted to show you today is that um, we need to live from the story 
of our deliverance. We need to live from the story of our deliverance. What do I mean? Why, why do I say this? Well, you might have noticed, it might have even been a little weird to you as we were reading through it, how God frames this whole thing. You know, Moses goes in, talks to Pharaoh, and then Moses goes to the people of Israel and uh, rather than tell them, hey, this is what's going to happen tonight, he says, this is what we're going to do on the first of every year from here on out. And then he tells them about this celebration, keeping the Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was telling them what was going to happen that night through this festival, but he was also inaugurating something important that was supposed to define them in the years to come. They were, they were to recall how God referred to them as his firstborn. Remember that in Exodus chapter four, God said, these people are my firstborn. But on the Passover night, firstborns, they all died, but not Israel. Why? They were to remember that they were delivered because the blood had saved them and that the blood would continue to save them. They'd been spared, so they needed to recall that night over and over again. There were generations of Hebrews that were not yet alive who would live, would exist, because their ancestors were spared on that night. You know, Grandpa, how, how are you here? Well, I am a firstborn child. I'm a firstborn son, but on that night, my parents put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and I live, and I had a family, and now you live because God spared me. Everyone needed to celebrate that event. They were a delivered people, delivered by the blood. And that is the story that the church must live from as well. We are a delivered people. But I think we're often tempted to live from a different story, a different narrative. Sometimes we live as a, as a frightened people. And when we tell ourselves this story, uh, the story goes that Jesus and his church are in peril. And that we are on the brink of disaster and about to be eliminated. We're endangered and we're doomed. When that becomes our story, we inevitably panic or we get angry and always the abandonment of the mission. We abandon the mission that Jesus gave us. Sometimes the story that we tell ourselves is that we are a self-righteous people. The story we tell ourselves here is that Jesus loves us because of our utter lovability. <laughs> We're the good people in the story. We're the moral people in the story. We, we think the right things, we believe the right things, and sometimes as a bonus, we even do the right things. That's why God loved us. That leads us to arrogance. It always leads to infighting. And always it leads to the abandonment of the mission that Jesus gave us. Sometimes we live as an indistinct people. We tell ourselves the story that sin is not all that bad. God loves us no matter what. The bar is super low. It's too hard to deny oneself anyhow. So we might as well go along thinking and living like everyone else. This leads to unhealth. It leads to fracture within our relationships and lives. It inevitably, inevitably leads to unhappiness. And always, it leads to the abandonment of the mission that Jesus gave us. Instead, we have to remember the true story. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ 
from our rebellion, our shame, our total separation from God. This leads us to humbly plead with love for our world and live in appreciation to a God who rescued us, embracing the mission that Jesus gave us. So important to live from the true story of scripture. Uh, There are lots of different versions of that old children's tale about Rapunzel, Uh, but in many of them, the king and queen's baby daughter is who is stolen early on in life by a wicked enchantress named Mother Gothel. Uh, As Rapunzel grows older, Gothel lies to her and tells her, I'm your mom, I'm your mother. And Rapunzel grows up thinking that that is the truth about her. This is my mom. This is who I am. But of course, the moment comes where she realizes her true identity. I'm the daughter of the king and queen in the palace, and I no longer need to live in this tower. Her whole life changed once she lived consistently with the true story of her identity. And as believers, we must, we have to live from the true story of our identity. We are a delivered people. We are a rescued people. We are a people for whom God has dispensed his grace and mercy and love and compassion. It came by the merciful blood of Jesus, nowhere else. And it was absolutely, totally, and completely required. Without it, we would still be lost. We would still be dead. We would still be enslaved. And I think we need to think upon that story until humility is produced in us. The blood of Jesus removes all boasting. I think we have to consider that story until love is produced in us. The cross is the most loving event in human history. And I think we should consider that story until joy is produced in us. We are passed over and completely safe before God because of the blood of his only begotten son. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.